1 Samuel chapter 18. We continue our series on friends doing life together this morning with gut-level friendships. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in 1 Samuel 18 verses 1 through 4, but we're actually going to look at the entire flow of the section between chapter 18 and chapter 20. I'm going to read the first four verses, and I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. Stand with a sense of awe and wonder that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to repent of the idea that we are individuals who do not need one another. You've called us to reflect you by living in community. And within that community, you've called us to reflect you by having gut-level friendships. Lord, help us to understand that this has everything to do with us living faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday I saw two men hugging. In fact, I actually saw several men hugging. And on top of that, I saw men walking around holding hands. When you hear me say that, I wonder what comes into your mind. What pops into many of our minds reveals just how difficult it is to have real, genuine, true friendships in our dark and challenging world. Many hear any sort of description of male affection one for the other and think immediately, are they gay? No, the men I am talking about seeing yesterday were not homosexual. They were involved actually in one of the only all-male fraternal-type groups left in the world anymore. 
They were on a football field. I saw a lot of hugging yesterday. All day. You see, these were men who were bound together in a common cause. Men that sacrificed together. Men who were involved in a common cause and put others in front of themselves for the sake of the common cause, for the sake of the common mission. They understand how needy they are of one another in the cause that they are committed to. They're involved in that sort of sacrifice. They are involved in that sort of battle that binds them together that doesn't allow them to think of themselves as random individuals, but causes them to recognize that they are bound together, that they need one another. And in that context, there are deep affection that is developed. If you'll notice something, the more difficult a group of people uh, have a situation or circumstance that that they choose to go through together, the more connected they stay down through their lives. There's a reason why men who have been in the military and fought in wars keep meeting down through the years together. Judy and I were traveling this week and saw a group of veterans about 70, 80 years old, and they were getting together. There's a reason The sacrifice to the common cause bound them together at a deep level of affection. They were all committed to one another. And within that group, some were specially connected one to another. And the most natural thing in the world for men or for women who are in common cause like that together to do is to show affection, to embrace, to do those sorts of things. And yet we see far less of that only in certain team sports, certain military unit situations do we see a ground that encourages these sorts of deep and abiding friendships. It is rarer and rarer that we see these sorts of sacrificial commitments together. And friendship, in the way we are talking about it, describing it in the Bible, is uniquely gender-specific. Because to make oneself vulnerable, to tell one one's secrets, to, to open up in the sense of vulnerability, there is a right understanding that if a man does that with a woman, that could lead a direction that you don't want it to go. So women need women in the sense of their deep and abiding friendships. And men need men in the sense of their deep and abiding friendships as we go through life together. But as we face a culture that is committed to an androgynous view of society, a genderless world, we don't want to think about ourselves in terms of gender. We're just people. We, we minimize any sort of focus on gender. Anybody can do anything and anything they want to do. And it's wrong to think about men and women in separate categories. And then we face a culture marked by things like 
gay marriage and the homosexual movement. And then on top of that, it is a culture that doesn't call for a whole lot of difficulty. Most live for comfort and are committed to the notion, if my life were more comfortable, I would be happier. I would have more satisfaction. If I was more comfortable financially, if I was more comfortable in the way I lived, I would have more satisfaction. So when we blur gender identity and we hold as our chief value a comfort culture, friendships become rare. Rare indeed. In fact, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this ought to be an environment where the reality of the gospel is redeeming friendships. There ought to be a display of biblical, true friendships in the church that is an example to the world. But it is a perverse world. And it is easy for our thoughts not to be taken captive by Christ, but rather for us to think like everybody else. Let me give you one example of just how dark it is. In our cultural context today, one of the ways that young men identify themselves as real men and their manhood not be questioned in certain ways is by sexually exploiting young women. We live in a cultural context where if a man is committed to staying pure, not putting himself in relationships with women that could lead down a road, and so he keeps sort of a distance until he finds one that he's going to marry, people say, what are you, gay? And so a lot of young men say, what do you mean? Here's what I've done. And the exploitation of women begins to be the mark of manhood. And if he's going to do that, then he needs to lessen his bonding and connectedness with other guys. I don't want people to think I'm not a real guy. I don't want people to think I'm like that. So it's a world that says, okay, you show your manhood by exploiting women and by having shallow relationships with men. Wow. And yet God has called us in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to provide a different vision. To show what real genuine friendship is. And to show our manhood by our commitment to purity. And to love and honor women, not to exploit them. And we need each other to do it just as women need each other to stay pure. And to keep their commitments. As we think about what it means to have real friendship. The, the first direction that our text points us in chapter 18 verse 1. And then I'm going to show you that that's bracketed at the end of chapter 20 verse 42. Is friendship blood. Friendship blood. Look with me at verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, the, the inner being of Jonathan was knit. The word means bound. It was joined together. 
knit to the soul of David, bound to the soul of David, joined together to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There was a sense of oneness within the inner being of these men. And we wonder, why is that? Did, did, did Jonathan just see David and say, man, he's really cool. Man, you know, we like the, 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 the same sort of activities. And, you know, I think that if I build a relationship with him, that'll help me get farther down the road. None of that. You know why his heart, his soul was bound to David? Because he is looking at David right now as David talks to his father, Saul, the king. And David is holding the severed head of Goliath. And there is blood dripping on the ground. Goliath was mocking the people of God and the true and living God. And yet God had another king anointed, a shepherd boy from Bethlehem who he had raised up to step in front of the people of God and defeat the enemy of God. And David deals with Goliath. He says, I'm going to take off your head. Then he says, I'm going to crush your head. And then he says, where's a sword so I can take his head? And then he takes off his head. And then he takes his head to the king. An echo of the promise in the very beginning that a seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Jonathan is a man committed to God. And he sees in David a man who is committed to the mission of God. He sees a commitment to self-sacrificial service. His heart is bound to David's because there is a sense of common mission. There is something outside of them that's more important to them than their own lives. Look with me. Well, first of all, think about this. In these chapters, 18, 19, and 20, David is facing the most difficult of situations. He's already been used in Saul's court. Now he's he stood before the people and as God's anointed has defeated the enemy and they have risen up. And yet as Saul looks at him now, though he has previously said he loved him, he now sees him as a threat. Because there's some, there's some country music going on that he doesn't like. The, the, the people are getting together in the villages and they're saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul is filled with bitter rage. And Saul wants to kill David. He wants to take his life. So David is having to look over his shoulder. And Saul is trying to kill him with a spear. He's trying to trick him into sending him to the front lines. He's telling him he has to get this many scalps because he thinks if he gets him out there enough, the Philistines will wipe him out and he can keep his hands clean but do away with this threat. It is horrible. It is persecution. It is pain. It is difficulty. It is tragic. But the way 18 and 20 end brackets the evil, brackets the pain. It brackets the tragedy. You know with what? friendship. David gets through this because God has given him one 
in common mission, who is his real friend, whose soul is knit together. Look with me at the end of chapter 20, verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall between, be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. It, it begins with the friendship of Jonathan and David. It ends with the friendship of Jonathan and David. And when uh, it's a literary device bracketing a section to say, listen, this evil is dealt with by this relationship. Friends in the battle, friends in the mission, friends in common cause in the mission of God. It is vital. Now think with me, Jonathan would have naturally despised David and seen him as a rival. Jonathan was the crown prince. He was the heir to the throne. David was the one who came out of nowhere. Jonathan would have looked at David and said, If there's any threat to my power, it's him. If there's anyone that could take my spot, it's him. If there's anyone that I should be worried about, it's him. He would have naturally been a rival, and yet he self-sacrificially commits himself to David. Now Saul has said, oh David, you have come, you've played music for me, you've soothed me, you've done this, you've won the battle. I love you. In chapter 16, verses uh, 17 and 21, 22, it says Saul loved him, but then Saul tries to kill him. You see, David had a utilitarian value to Saul. He had a role to play. If he can help me get the ends I want, I am committed to him, and yet Jonathan and David, what is going on is the opposite. They were drawn together the way friends are always brought together in common cause, common mission, common fight, common struggle. True friendship is always about something beyond the friends. The person who says, I have needs, I have to find a friend to meet my needs, is not seeking a friend. They want an employee, they want a business partner. Friendship is not about needing a friend. It's about common cause. It's not about personal needs. It's not about what someone can do for me. Because if it is, then you walk away if they do not do that for you. Anthony Esselin wrote an article called A Requiem for Friendship that is absolutely fascinating. He says, you know, we still have the word friendship in our culture. And we still have something of the reality, but it is a distant, dilute, bloodless term. For modern American men, friendship is no longer forged in the heat of battle or in the dust of the plains as they drive their herds across half a continent. Our lives no longer involve the risk and the sweat that was so often the cement of deep friendship. No man will help hew the oaks for our cabin because we no longer live in cabins. No man will stand by as we jump overboard to set the trawling net because we have no boat and set no net. We live too comfortably for that. 
And then we look and we see the devastation wrought by the sexual revolution. We fail to see it as such, and it's no surprise. Naturally, when we think about the, 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 the paganism, the immorality, we think first of its damage to family and to relations between men and women. We think of divorce, pornography, unwed motherhood, abortion, suicidally falling birth rates, but the sexual revolution has also nearly killed friendship as devoted to anything beyond shallow conversation and trivial connections. Those two things. If you live for comfort, you will have no true friends. If you do not acknowledge the wisdom of God and delight in gender distinctiveness, you will have no true friends. It's costly mission. It's service that demands costly friendships, true friendships. What many call friendship today is really uh, more accurately described just simply as contacts and niceness. Our, our, church, our, our world, even in the context of the church, seems to value niceness above all else. That is to be socially acceptable, to be pleasant, to be agreeable. The, the word is defined by a harmlessness. So if we have contacts with people and we are nice, we think we have friends And yet that is superficial, shallow connections with other people. That is not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about these friends and friends that are marked by friendship, blood, common cause, and suffering and sacrificing together. If you want friends, passionately serve self-sacrificially and give yourself to a cause, and you'll find fellow travelers If you don't want good friends, live for comfort. Focus on yourself. And the greatest cause in the history of the world is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's why the deepest and most abiding friendships ought to happen in the context of the church as the church displays to the world what friendship really is. This becomes clear as we look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 18. We see friendship pain. Look with me there. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul Saul keeps David there with him. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant, or literally cut a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. Now, here's here's what's fascinating here. Jonathan is the initiator of this covenant friendship, this, this pledge that they make to one another. And Jonathan's the one who is in line for the throne. David is the one that's under him in the sense of uh, cultural structures, societal structures. But yet Jonathan made a covenant. He cut a covenant. He makes a pledge to live a life of self-sacrificial loyalty to David. It's the idea of this. They They are agreeing together and calling God's judgment upon them if they don't live it out. That with you and I live together, Jonathan and David... My rights will be less important than our relationship and your good. That's what it is. My rights are going to be less important than our relationship. 
And then look how he fleshes it out in verse 4. It's fascinating. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's going on here? This is a symbolic action. He's saying, listen, David, I am committing myself to you. I love you as I love my own soul. I am not in this for what you offer me so I can see whether it's worth it. I am committing myself to you. This is not a consumer relationship where I have the power and I'll see if you bring me value. He says, listen, I am the crown prince. I am the one with the right to the throne. Here is my robe. I give it to you. You will be on the throne. Well, we know God's already decided that. But God works in Jonathan to acknowledge that. And later on, Jonathan is going to understand it and order his life in that way. I have the throne, but you are my friend. Here, you have the throne. I commit myself to you. I renounce my right and I give it to you. Here is my armor. Here is my sword. Here is my bow. Here is my belt. All of those things that acknowledge me as that one. Normally you would destroy your rival. You would kill him. You would cut his legs out from under him. But instead of seeking David's life, Jonathan pledges to give his life for David if needed. And in the end he does. Friendship is costly in the best sort of way. The most miserable people in the world are not people who are going through great sacrifice, usually. They're people who are not going through great sacrifice and see no meaning in their lives. No sense of purpose. Why am I doing this? Why this job? Why another day? But but friendship is costly in the best sort of way because it reminds us That life is purposeful, that it's meaningful, that it's worth living. One of the things that friendships bring to our lives through our self-sacrificial commitment to one another is to say, this matters. There's something going on here bigger than me. In chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, there's already been a situation where Saul, in his jealous anger and rage, he tried to kill David with a spear several times. He sends him to the front line, but David ends up having success. He decides that the Philistines will kill him if he keeps sending him there. He, gives him his, he tries to give him his daughter in marriage, not as an act of kindness or care for his daughter, but as a snare to him. He tells him 104 skins of the Philistines should be brought, figuring that he'll die in the process of trying to do that, and he brings back 200. And then he tells Jonathan in chapter 19, verse 1, we should just kill him thinking that his son would say, to protect my right of the throne, okay, let's plot it. Jonathan says in verses 4 and 5, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine. You see, their bond is in mission. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And it says, Saul, listen to him. 
And he said, David shall not be put to death. And that did not last long in his jealous rage. But we see Jonathan defending David. It's costly to him. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than the self-invited, self-protective lovelessness. It is like hiding the talent in a napkin, and for much the same reason. I knew that, God, you were a hard man. Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, more careful about our own happiness. If a man is not uncalculating towards the earthly beloveds whom he has seen, he is none the more likely to be so towards God whom he has not. We shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. And if our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. Friendship pain. It's a part of it. If your motive for having what you call friendships is your own needs, if it's self-oriented, then you will run when it costs you something. You will see it as no value because it only had a utilitarian value in the first place. And you will lead an empty life. Oh, but for those who risk true friendship, look at the end of chapter 20, verses 40 through 42. We find Jonathan and David together again. In light of all this difficulty, and what we find them doing again and again is talking to one another. He, he wants to kill me. No, I don't think he does. I'll find out if he does. And okay, let's plan this. I'll find out the answer, and then I'll go into a field, and I'll say this. And if I say this, he wants to kill you, so leave. And if I don't, come and make yourself available. They're sharing. They're open. <laughs> they have no secrets. They're on full display to one another. They are vulnerable to each other. Jonathan and David open. They love each other by letting each other in, each looking out for the best interests of the other in common, in the common mission of serving the Lord. They are open in their feelings, their thoughts, their fears. They let each other in on their dailiness, their decisions, their flaws. By the way, you do know that you need other people to point out your sins that you don't see, right? If nobody ever walks into your life and says, hey, I've seen this, it's not good, let's talk about it, then you don't have true friendships, relationships. None of us can see all of our sin. 
We need others. We need people who have committed themselves to us. We're vulnerable about our flaws to others. We're not living to create an image. We're living to be conformed in the image of Christ. We are on mission together. We have a sense of purpose that drives us. And then look at verses 40 and 41. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them into the city. Now, this is the deal. They've done this uh, thing. David knows it. I mean, Jonathan knows his father wants to kill David. He gives the signal through this boy. He doesn't even know what's going on. And we see that David ends up alive only because of his friendship with Jonathan. Self-sacrificial suffering Jonathan is enduring to love David, to act on his behalf. Jonathan is navigating the difficult path of being loyal to a father, which he is, and loving David with his friendship love. Verse 41, and as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept for one another, David weeping the most. And liberal Bible commentators, see, see, homosexuals. Do you know how tragic that is? When perversity becomes the norm, and what is the norm becomes perverse in people's thinking, you better believe they hugged, kissed, and wept. (laughs) They are in the midst of battle and war together. There has become a victory that came through their friendship and common commitment to one another. This is a gut-level friendship. You think guys who win a football game at the last second hug one another. Try people who know that life is war and service to God. And they self-commit to one another no matter the cost. Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Uh, Do you see the hopefulness? No matter how this turns out, no matter what happens, we're going to depart right now. But we will be connected forever. We will be friends forever. There's a hopefulness here. If what draws us together is him his purpose, his mission, and it's eternal and it can't be thwarted, then our friendships are eternal in him. This is what men do who battle and suffer together for a cause bigger than them. It's the most normal thing in the world. You know, if you could buy paradise, write you a check, get the Garden of Eden back before the fall, If you could buy paradise, a place without sin, you would still not be happy without friends. David, I mean, Adam was there, and he was alone. And that was not good. That's why she... You should always cultivate friendships more than you cultivate stuff. You know what the right question is? The right question for the believer in Jesus Christ is not, how can I have a friend like that? It's how can I be a friend like that? So-called friendships without blood, without pain. 
are superficial pseudo-friendships that don't provide the hope talked of here. Let's think about Jonathan as we apply it. Jonathan had the right to the throne. He was to be king, and he could demand David to be his servant. But he stepped out of his role as king. He stripped off his glory for the sake of David to save his life. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jonathan is so much like Jesus in this story. It's an account in redemptive history that's setting us up for the ultimate fulfillment of it in John chapter 15. Where Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, says, I do not call you servants, I call you friends. Why? How can that be? Well, though I had all of the glory of heaven, I took on human flesh. And I went to a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Even a death on a cross being marked as being cursed by the Father for you. So I do not call you servants because I laid aside my glory to serve you. And I have every right to only call you servants, but I call you friends because I have made a covenantal commitment to our friendship. And that's what Jonathan does. And you will never know a relationship like that by demanding that somebody else be like that. You know those relationships by following him and asking, how can I be a friend like that? You know how you're liberated to do that? Because you've already got a friend. His name is Jesus. And he's an eternal friend, no matter what. So you're liberated not to demand a friend, but to be one. Let's pray.